Hi there, my name is Paddy Butler. This podcast is brought to you from Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. Curator Madeline Dunnigan brings a stunning cast of writers and thinkers for this week's episode. The Liberia Room is Madeline's impressive rethinking of the literary salon. And kicking off the first edition is a discussion around the theme of water with Lou Stoppard, Dr. Alexander Campbell, and author of The Water Cure, the exceptionally talented Sophie McIntosh. But first, a few titles which have come to our attention here at Liberia. First is fellow Irishman Usheen Fagan and his debut novel, Nobber. And what a debut this is. Set in medieval plague-ridden Ireland, this is the announcement of a major writing talent of exceptional balance and understanding. As far as I'm concerned, that is the case. Amazing stuff. Next on the list is Face It by the wonderful, amazing Debbie Harry. Now the pop icon gives great insight into crafting her image and identity as vocal lead and front of punk band Blondie. So she's kind of, I mean, she's integral to the creative uh, idea behind that. And this is gonna be a treasure trove for those who are interested in the period, no doubt. Harry seems to have had a hunger for an alternative visual language, proposing photo shoots with upturned cars or wearing a dress made of razor blades. So the visual element of this book is pretty stunning and will make for a great present, no doubt, in the coming months. Going back to the Roman period now, Lessons in Stoicism by John Sellers. Now, Stoicism has really re-caught the public's imagination recently. And a lot of people seem to be returning to it as a source of philosophy for the everyday, shall we say. And it's nice to get a slim modern interpretation, which is well designed. Finally, special mention must go to Karen Russell's Orange World, a new collection of weird short stories to keep the imagination glowing with an eerie charge. But now let's go over to Madeline Dunnigan to bring us the first Liberia Room. ideas of femininity in your work as well. Can you expand a bit on um, like women and water and, and shape, the shaping of bodies or the shaping of women mm. in the water cure particularly? Yeah, well, I guess we, like, you know, we have like, like the lady in the lake with sprites and mermaids and sirens. Like when, I, when you think about kind of creatures, when you think about kind of, you know, women in the sea, it's always in the guise of like temp dresses or magical creatures or unattainable creatures. I was interested in the water cure particularly in terms of, you know, hyster- the hysterical female and how that ties into water. That like we always kind of associate water with emotions and like, you know, in astrology, it's emo- emotionality as well and femininity. And I was just interested, like, why do we always do that? Is it because is it so primal? And yeah, I was doing it too in the book because there's one, one of the characters in particular, like she's highly kind of emotional and histrionic even. And that was like a deliberate action on my part. And the, the things to cure her are, you know, water cures, things to get the emotions out of her by purifying, by like almost drowning herself, by like hurting herself. Um, and I could see parallels in terms of things like how we, how, how the Victorians treated um, hysterical women, for example, with things like hydrotherapy jets, which literally bring you to hysterical release, aka okay, like a water vibrator, I guess. <laughs> um, so it was interesting thinking about how those those like parallels are like, you know, we have them in history, but also they kind of feel like quite intuitive. Like I don't know why I immediately think like, oh, water is like very emotional and like gives me a lot of feelings. It's like always a flux, and you know, it's feminine. It's just mm. it's weird, kind of unpicking that and being like, oh, it's something we just kind of take for granted. But like, why? Yeah, like how much of it is intuitive, and how much of it are inherited histories that we 
play out ourselves again and again, being the Ophelia of our own sad <laughs> modern tragedy. And also Ophelia, Leah. I mean, that's not that's not a uh, Leah isn't the character in the book, and it's not it's not an accident. <laughs> no, yes, exactly. Um, this scene talking about women and water and bodies seems like an appropriate moment to talk a bit about your piece, Lou, for um, the ladies about the ladies' bond. Mm. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about uh, about that and the experience of writing it and the people that you met during it? Sure. So that piece um, appears in a book which you also Sophie, are in uh, about the ladies' pond. It's a collection of writing. It was a it was an interesting piece for me to write because I've it sort of felt like I was right I'd been reporting something accidentally for a long time without meaning to because I'd swum there for a while um, when Daunt got in touch about writing that piece and I focused sort of quite specifically on the winter because I swim through the winter I swim every week all year round completely mad um, so that was sort of my focus but it was it was a really nice chance to put in writing something that I never really intended to write about. I didn't sort of... Often when you do sort of weird things as a writer, you're usually doing them with the story, sort of itching around in the back of your head. But with this, it was just something I really enjoyed doing. But it was really lovely to be able to write about it and to put some of the women's stories sort of into print, I guess, and mm. share them with other people because a lot of the joy of the ladies' pond is the conversations you have with these amazing women. And I think something that does come out through the book, not just in my essay but in others, is it is a space that has these sort of shining older women who really own that place. And I don't think there's a lot of public spaces where older women really feel like it is their space. Um, and they very much feel that way there. Sometimes with quite amusing consequences where you can swim there for like a few years and yet every time you're there, they'll sort of touch disapprovingly at you as if you're sort of not prepared for sort of five or six degree water or what have you. Um, but it was really lovely to have more sort of fixed conversations with them for a certain purpose. Um, and it was nice, that piece, because I wrote it for this book, but then as an extract of it was published by The New Yorker, which was really lovely because it sort of exacerbated that undertone of the book and the piece and I guess the pond in general, which is something to do with English eccentricity, which I think really appeals when you sort of re-see it through the eyes of an American which I sort of did when writing that piece um, and it, it it was a it was a really joyful piece to write and I felt very proud to get to know some of the women better there's a wonderful lady who I spoke to and I wrote about called Anne Burley who swims there every day and she's 82 and she's so amazing she just looks amazing and she's brilliant uh, so it was it was a really it was a really really nice piece but it's what's funny with always writing about swimming or water is it's such a difficult thing to put into words um the sensation and particularly describing the pond which is such a special place for so many people it's very hard to describe that feeling adequately so it's quite an interesting challenge there's a lot of people who write about water but it's really hard to describe um, so that was definitely a big challenge. Why do you think writers and artists are so drawn to to water? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, obviously, because of working on this photography project. I think I think some... OK, there's lots of different reasons. So photo speaking from sort of in terms of photography, something like the pool, visually, it just makes sense, right? Like, there's amazing light. The blue is really significant and strong. There's also these incredible angles and sort of this graphic... Um, sense of the pool, like the tiles and the symmetry. 
but it's also a sort of backdrop, as is the beach, for life to happen. So you sort of, that's why you also see a lot of pool scenes or beach scenes in cinema, I feel. Like it's a space of transition that you can project a lot of things onto. So particularly in photography, the pool is employed in lots of different ways. You have photographers who approach it because of the more graphic sort of visual sensibilities. And then you have people who are attracted to sort of the pool as a as a stage for what goes on around it. So they project things around glamour or fashion, style, sex. It becomes very um, cinematic in a way. So there's lots of different ways to approach. The pool's really interesting in photography because it it's quite hard to find a photographer that hasn't shot in a pool at some point in some place. But it's approached in so many different ways. Um, and I'm dividing the book into... It's quite weird, actually, for a photography book. I'm splitting it into, like, moods of swimming because I couldn't work out how to order it. And I was like, I don't want to do it chronologically. I don't want to do it by photographer. So I was like, I'll just do it by types of swimming. <laughs> so some of it is about sort of meditation and some of it is about glamour and some of it is about freedom and some is about holiday. But I think the same is true of literature, right? If you think of the way that writers have approached water or swimming, the pool in The Great Gatsby is very, very different to the pool in me by your name or the pool in Cassandra at the wedding like you see the pool used as quite a dark symbol for sort of past glory or frustration or particularly in the Great Gatsby like the kind of difficulties of wealth and luxury but then elsewhere in literature it's this kind of shining symbol of happiness and for others it's much more about calm and meditation so it's quite a sort of useful tool in literature. you see it used a lot like um there's a really nice quote, actually, that I will say now, which is from a Laurie Colvin story called Wet, which is about a woman who swims all the time and her husband gets sort of insanely jealous. Or it might be her boyfriend, I can't remember if they're actually married in the story. Um, he gets very jealous of her swimming. And it really captures, I think, this sense of the privacy of swimming. And there is this sort of something quite slippery about it and something I understand why people are jealous of people who love swimming particularly if it's someone close to you because there is such an escapism to swimming so naturally you would think are they escaping me are they going there to be away but there's this wonderful quote and it says what had grieved him was simply a fact every day of her life she would be at some point damp then drying and for one solid time wet and I just think it's just so wonderful and it's one of the few occasions where I think it really sums up the ritual of going swimming and getting dry and just brilliant. And Sophie, what about for you? Because in the water cure, you you have the sea, the wild water, and then there's also the swimming pool, which is almost used as a training ground. What what was the pool for you in your book? Quite a lot of things in the book because it's kind of it's seen of like punishment is where they do they kind of water therapies. It's seen of like relaxation. Like I think I read like a re- review in Goodreads. It was like not not complimentary, but it was like all they do is lie around by the pool. <laughs> I was like, yes, it's true, they do do a lot of, like, lounging by the pool, but what else are you going to do on, like, a climate-changed island where you're, like, you're not allowed to go into the actual world? Just, like, hang out in your pool. Um, and also it's kind of like a scene of seduction. Like, there is there is, um, there is a moment where, um, well, there's a few moments where there's kind of romantic element to the pool and, yeah, the middle sister who has a relationship is kind of, that's where it kind of begins in the pool itself and so yeah it's really interesting think again like we you think thinking about what can be projected into a pool like a scene of glamour where they're just lying beside it like rubbing lotion onto each other but also this like really sinister scene um sinister place where they are holding themselves underneath literally until they almost drown and that is a thing that they've been doing for years and years and years and have it both be this kind of place of safety and security but also this place of 
you know, real real danger. And then in the actual sea itself, um, they don't go in it because it's mm. like, well, that's too scary. The swimming pool is like this knowable, knowable sea, even though it's salt water as well. It's just this kind of zone that is less scary. And I can kind of identify with that because even though I have I do swim in the sea as well, I think I have a lot of respect for the sea. Like if I ever go to the beach with friends who have not grown up by the sea, like my boyfriend is always running into the sea. And I'm like, do not run into the sea. Like, yeah. do not just like go for a swim. Like, can you see that there's the lifeguard section like there and like we are not in it. <laughs> and so that means you shouldn't go in. He's like, it's fine. I'm like, well, it's not fine. Like things can change really quickly. Um, yeah. And I think it's still um, the least studied and least noble part of our planet, right? Mm. The sea yeah. is still... A- it's both symbolically and literally an unknowable space. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading the At The Pond book again mm-hmm. today, and there was a lovely quote by a writer I can't remember right now, but I'll remember the edit, <laughs> um, who, who spoke about the different kinds of swimming, wild freshwater swimming versus swimming pool mm-hmm. swimming encourages in you mm-hmm. from a kind of... Uh, I think it was, she was like, you're both more convivial and solitary in mm-hmm. the in the ponds compared to, I think it was, it might it was Charlene Theo maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the in in the swimming pool you're encouraged mm-hmm. to a kind of a pattern of swimming, a, a kind of formulaic mm-hmm. and regimented joining of ranks kind of swimming it's also so contained right when you're in the pool like there there are edges and there's a bottom and you can see everything whereas in the pond you always have that sense of like what could be swimming around below you Alex I wanted to ask you more about your research and the work you're doing could you tell us a little bit about it um and the, and the kind of the poets that you're looking at as well? Yeah, so um, I'm currently working on a book project uh, which is titled Hydropoetics. So I'm looking at contemporary poetry from across the world ocean and how it responds to um, what I'm terming oceanic sacrifice zones. So this idea of spaces that are deemed disposable um, across the global ocean. So places like the Gulf of Mexico, which has some of the highest rates of oil spillage in the world. Um, places like the Niger Delta, similar oil catastrophe there. But also places like the, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch or the North Atlantic Gyre. Um, and those sites that are kind of dis- disposed of because they are filled with disposables. Um, there's kind of plastic vortexes that you have. Um, as well as sort of other spaces of disposal in terms of the transatlantic triangle or the Mediterranean um, sea in terms of current migrant routes, right, in terms of how we are deeming certain bodies and lives uh, discardable, uh, wasted lives. Mm. So these different sort of sites of sacrifice and how uh, contemporary poetry and art uh, as well as responding to these dynamics of disposal, which are kind of underpinned by a really nefarious mix of uh, ongoing colonization um, of capital, um, and yeah, how that's kind of underpinning all this kind of current questions about oceanic decline. Uh, that's kind of where it's emerging mm. from at the moment. Which it, seems an interesting contrast where we talk about the ponds as this kind of democratic space, mm-hmm. but actually water is, you know, despite being liquid, filled with borders mm-hmm. and highly colonised. Can you yeah. talk more about... Um, this aspect of it and specifically sure. the poets that you're looking at and what it's what you've learned what it's shown you sure so i'm i was thinking a bit about this when you sent through um 
themes for today. So the idea of sort of like water and colonization, I think there's a few different strands that we can think about in terms of this. So um, the first is kind of perhaps a little bit easier in terms of thinking about the maritime past in terms of how empires literally spread through water and mm -hmm. water currents and passageways and sort of um, the colonization of the Americas, um, the transatlantic slave trade, ongoing sort of slave trade systems across the globe um, and sort of uh, contemporary neoliberal or neocolonial passageways, right? So people tend to think that are, uh, there's lots of different things going on here. So 90% of the world's goods travels by ship. Um, everything that we probably are eating off of or drinking off of or typing on today will have traveled at some point in its life on a container ship. Um, similarly, our communications, people think it's all satellites, 90%, like 90 to 95% of our um, communication systems are subsea um, by the, the same transatlantic cables that were laid in the 1800s we use today to text and Instagram and all that kind of stuff. So the ocean is like very much at the heart of all of our ongoing connections and communication systems. And consumerism. And consumerism, completely, exactly. Um, so that's kind of a couple of ways of thinking about oceans and colonialism. Uh, and then another way that I'm working on a lot, again, is kind of through this lens of waste and wasting, um, and in terms of how water is a conduit of waste uh, and how it kind of circulates and toxification. And um, yeah, so there's this whole concept that's coming out in terms of uh, toxic colonialism or waste colonialism. It's kind of being threaded out or waste imperialism, garbage imperialism. There's all these kind of like buzzwords that I'm enjoying, but I don't really know which one's which. <laughs> um, but there's a great body of work coming out of them. Um, and I'll give it a shout out is the discard studies. Uh, and they have a, a really great resource for anyone who's interested in that kind of stuff. But the idea essentially is that um, waste colonialism is an extension of older forms of colonization, right? So imperial histories are reiterated through um, consumerist channels. The kind of the natural resources of an oceanic space are appropriated by a colonizing nation like the USA or the UK or anyone else. Um, they take those natural subsea resources take them out and mine them, use them for own profits and gain. Generally, it's kind of like petrochemicals in particular. So sort of think about um, deep sea mining or deep sea offshore drilling. They take out the oil, they refine that oil, turn it into plastics. Plastics get thrown back into the sea. The sea, yeah. the sea then becomes polluted by plastics, becomes even more and more degraded by microplastics. Exactly. Which that then, we eat. That we eat, exactly. But the people that eat it the most are the indigenous populations whose lands and seas have already been corrupted by the mining processes. So their entire foodways and passages and cultural histories are dominated by these ongoing cycles of extraction and exploitation. So there's, those are the kind of ones you can think about. So there's kind of contemporary hydrocolonialism, I guess you can want to talk about it that way. And then there's like earlier forms of that, like maritime expansion. So basically, colonialism's still here, which mm -hmm. just go away. <laughs> and, and poets' responses to this. So, yeah. so when I was reading your research, I was interested in the the phrasing. You said that you were looking at uh, poets or poetry which metabolizes mm. oceanic uh, ecosystem decline and social injustice and yeah. I understood that to be and I the idea that kind of helps it along increases it can you can you explain that for us yeah I kind of it's one of those things where when you're writing you, you're like oh it's a great word and then later on you're like oh shit what does that actually mean <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so I guess the idea is so metabolism I guess it's a conversion process right it's sort of like you take something in and you transform it and then somehow it turns into energy, right? So I, can, I think that's something I'm kind of interested in, in terms of how 
poets are using these contemporary crises, because like experiences of injustice, of inequality, of unevenness, and they're not taking that as sort of a continually pessimistic thing. They are trying to re-energize their own responses okay. to it. I think this, it's still very early days. I'm writing it <laughs> almost like by making art, by using it to. Yeah. to make some kind of art there can be some kind of yeah which isn't to say that the only reason that these poets exist is because there is a crisis right mm. I, I think it's a bit you want to be careful of reducing art to mere reactionary processes like it's not a sort of it's, it's very much a political agent but art is more than just a political response um but yeah i think there's something interesting in terms of how particularly for these poets i'm working with so people who, like craig santos perez who is um uh, an indigenous Chamorro writer from Guam, and how he engages with the water histories of his island nation um, in a way that kind of both accounts for the ongoing militarization of Guam in terms of like, I think it's something insane, like two thirds of the island of Guam is taken over by US military personnel. Um, the actual indigenous populations are very, very much reduced by the military's um, occupation of that island and ongoing occupation. But how he's using those kind of contemporary histories and, and ongoing injustices to fuel a sense of resistance, to fuel a sense of, um, yeah, of, of alternative future making. It's the other kind of thing I'm interested in, in terms of how they engage with these contemporary injustices and try and think beyond them or around them mm -hmm. through alternative thought patterns and um, not thought patterns, but knowledge systems, indigenous cosmologies, ancestral stories, um, different sources of water thinking that are not colonial, that are not capital. Um, that's kind of what I'm looking at. I want to pick up and, and talk more about that in, in a minute, but I also um, wanted to bring in you, Sophie, with these ideas of oceanic destruction. Was that because there is the both kind of real and imaginary ideas of toxification within the book? The characters um, live in a world where they are both... Uh, victims of climate change but also imagine it feels like worse toxins from the world the air around them and they're constantly sprinkling salt everywhere and, and using kind of what feel like slightly quack medicine um, <laughs> uh, ways of of uh, what's the word challenging or preventing these things but also definitely methods that my mum had told me to <laughs> I'm constantly gargling the salt water um, but yeah it was that was that in your mind can you talk about this idea of destruction of the environment that in your work yeah so there is the climate change in the book but again it's kind of not really explored but it's just like kind of the backdrop for it and then well, I guess there's the kind of the climate change in the sense that there is something that's happened on the mainland which is there's like a disease which has caused men to become toxic to women and how do they kind of guard against that and it's like well how do you how do you guard against that if, if there's no like way, other way you can do it that of course like we kind of turn to to salt and to muslin these things which again like felt really like instinctual ways of curing and like muslin it's like what you wrap babies in strain things in. it just felt like a really natural fit for what you would just sort of strain the very air itself but also like a very futile <laughs> method of like protecting from that stuff um, and the salt as well, I think there's something quite yeah traditional about it, something yeah witchcrafty almost. It's like when when the when the enemy well, maybe the enemy is the wrong word, but when the when the thing kind of endangering you is like a very male energy, like maybe turn to these kind of more feminine like kind of um, sorry cures and remedies 
that you find in like folk medicine and stuff. It kind of felt like a really natural fit um, when I was writing it. And so I was thinking, you know, like today, like we go to a spa um, to sweat out bad feelings and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like that is one of the therapies they have in the book. You know, like if, if they're, when they're literally thinking about the toxins inside themselves and protecting themselves, they kind of they either harm themselves or they like sweat it out. <laughs> they drown. They sweat <laughs> so many so many waters, um, but they can't cry. I mean, they're not really supposed to cry. Um, so just thinking in terms of how we release things from the body, like what do we take in and what do we release and, you know, what what good does it actually do? Because at the end of the day, the cures are kind of not things that maybe necessarily help, but like you said, they're kind of quack medicine, but they, they help them feel better. Mm. They are better than doing nothing. And of course, water is a conduit for both cure and disease. It's, mm-hmm. it's pharmacon. It, mm. it holds both of those things in it. Yeah. And a conduit for a lot more things that you were highlighting, Alex. Um, I wanted to move on to talk about presentations of water in art um, to present a, a post-carbon world kind of utopian visions and um, if you could tell us a bit more about the poets that you're looking at there and, and I also wonder if Lou this relates to some of the photography that you're looking at in terms of utopian visions. Yeah um, so some of the other work I'm doing is not just on waste um, and toxins uh, I'm looking a little bit in my work at sort of um, alternative energy uh, as a, as a a thing that's been kind of contemplated through art and poetry. Um, so I've recently done a couple of pieces of writing on uh, marine renewables and how marine renewables are being harnessed in a sort of a creative, imaginative sense as a, as a mode of producing alternative futures, right? So this idea of energy transition, it, it doesn't ju- it's not just technological. You can't have proper transition beyond petroculture, beyond fossil fuels, without fundamentally changing how we we is like a very broad we, uh, relate to energy and consumption narratives. So um, a couple of things I've been working on, there's a really fantastic uh, visual artist called Hannah Imlach, who's based in Scotland, um, and she's been working with a poet, Lila Matsumoto, uh, on a kind of collaborative sculpture poetry series where they have gone out to the Monarch Islands in the Western Isles. They've gone to the Isle of Egg, which is the best island ever, mm-hmm. um, and uh, have kind of engaged with community energy projects there in terms of small island populations that are transitioning to alternative energy futures already. They're already there. They're already in existence. Scotland, in particular, is the world leader of marine renewable energy infrastructure and technology. It is home to the most um, offshore energy technology test sites in the world. It's home to EMEC, which which is the European Marine Energy Centre up in Orkney, which has some of the strongest tides in the world. So if you're thinking about moving beyond fossil fuels, it's already happening um, here which is great um so what i'm interested in with this is sort of like how yeah how poetry is responding to this in terms of thinking not again not reactively i'm really against this idea that all that art does is react i think it's not it is reactive but it's also proactive it can cause change it can Mm. promote change and alter our ways of kind of engaging with one another um so yeah so i'm interested in how these poetry sculpture projects and all the projects I'm looking at are actually really strangely they're collaborative they're always between several groups of people which I think in and of itself is an interesting thing about the types of society that renewable energy might move towards rather than this kind of like individualized product you have this kind of collaborative working it's not a single work it's a working Mm -hmm. it's a working towards it's a working with um 
so yeah, there's kind of ideas of community, alternative, um, yeah, future making beyond sort of disastrous fossil fuels. Something slightly more positive than yeah, just yeah. But it's not necessarily. And I, I had a conversation with a, a visual artist. And I was a bit like, "Do you think it's utopian?" She's like, "No, it's just it's realistic." Which I think nice. is nice. That's nice. <laughs> Especially with all the doom and gloom we get every day from like like Guardian environment. Like fair play, like it is doom and gloom, but there are these other kind of pockets of positivity and hope and I think hope's a really like important narrative that these kind of works are really engaging with and thinking about hope and and ideas of utopian vision in a very different way is that something that you see in the photography that you've been looking at Lou yeah you do you do see that in a lot of photography around the pool like it is this symbol of sort of freedom and happiness and summer and escape and sort of these things that are quite easy to dismiss as quite frivolous but actually are things that photography can really celebrate and show in a really nice way. And it's really interesting looking at the pool, particularly within fashion photography, because actually the pool has been really important in the development of fashion photography in terms of showing a more liberated or independent woman. And often the pool enters fashion photography when image makers stop shooting so much in the studio and start shooting more on location. So there's a great image maker called Louise Dahl-Wolf, who people don't remember enough. He was a brilliant fashion photographer who was one of the pioneers of getting people out of the studio, and she makes incredible images around the pool. And the first ever... It was shot by Edward Steichen, not by Louise, but the first um, photographic cover of British Vogue ever, which was in 1932 was a swimming pool image. It's not actually shot in a swimming pool, it's shot in the studio, but it looks, it's a pool image. It's a woman in a bathing suit raising a beach ball above her head. And the pool and swimming within that context is a symbol for change and progress and freedom, particularly freedom for women. So it's really interesting how the pool has sort of floated through photography. It's really embarrassing. Please cut that. (laughs) (laughs) But then also you see the pool used as a symbol for lots of other things. And I think... Particularly in, I mean, the the book is about photography, but I do look at the pool in literature and film as well, just sort of in my own research and also kind of it all feeds in together. And you do see in literature and and in film, the pool is often used as a symbol for difficulty. Sometimes it's used as a sort of direct metaphor for being, for sort of drifting along or being lost. I mean, you see that in like the pool scene in Lost in Translation, for example, when Bill Murray is alone and jet lagged and sort of confused in his very expensive hotel you see it in the graduate there was a really good piece actually in the new york times recently i forget the name of the writer that looked at female um movie directors and and um sitcom directors who are sort of reclaiming the pool scene and using it but actually the pool scene has always been quite nuanced yeah there's an element of like babes looking hot and the pool is used <laughs> in that way but actually it's often used in these ways to show um moments of difficulty emotional difficulty and if you think of like the most famous sort of swimming movie or probably the most famous swimming short story which is The Swimmer by John Mm -hmm. Cheever the pool there is a symbol for distraction and it's this idea that the pool is this happy emblem that one can enjoy to forget the sort of inevitabilities of real life and difficulty and breakdown and there's a really good quote actually by Joan Didion that I was thinking about through everything we were talking particularly some of the environmental things I'm always if in doubt just quote Joan Didion but she says um a pool is for many of us in the west a symbol not of affluence but of of order of control over the uncontrollable a pool is water made available and useful 
and is, as such, infinitely soothing to the Western eye. So it's this kind of idea of the pool as a distraction, right? So mm. it kind of goes back to a lot of the themes that we were talking about, where it's water, as she says, made controllable and useful and enjoyable, and you can happily do your laps or happily sunbathe while knowing that the fish you're eating is probably full of plastic and <laughs> your house might be under the sea in a few years if you live by the coast and all of these things. So I think that's the interesting thing about representations of water is they're never what they seem. Just as like water is never what it seems. Mm-hmm. Um, one last question. That's, that was really lovely from Thank you. Um, <laughs> and finally, you know, we're living in a time of unprecedented climate change but also unprecedented unprecedented access to things like spas and swimming pools to also a renaissance of wild swimming. How do you think, particularly as writers, artists, curators and thinkers, our relationship with water has changed? And what does that mean? I have one thing that I just briefly think, but do you think, we talked about the pond being like democratic and swimming being more available, but I do think it is important to know that swimming is still contained often to quite a small part of society. Like, I do think, particularly at the pond, yeah. to access the pond, you know, you have to live in London, it needs to be commutable, after you have to live in North London. You have to be a cis woman. Exactly. There are a lot of issues around, and feeling comfortable in the pool. And I think if you come from... I swim with a swimming group called Swim Dem Crew, which was started by these two brilliant guys, P and Nathaniel, um, and part of the reason they started, it's an inner, inner city swimming group. Um, and they started it because they're both young men of colour, they're both black, and they didn't feel comfortable like rocking up to the pool because people looked at them like, you know, why are you here, almost. And they wanted to have a crew to rock up to the pool with. And also they wanted to teach other people to swim and they wanted to sort of have this great group of people that swam together and they can explain their reasoning sort of much more articulately than I can. But there is a pools and spaces of water are often very white spaces and very middle class spaces, and that's definitely something that should change with swimming because it's such a it's it is such a brilliant thing to do, um, and it's you can be truly alone as well when you swim, which is a brilliant thing for young people when they use so much technology and things like that. It's a really great um, way of sort of disappearing out of the world. But I think it's important to recognise that not enough people feel like swimming is, or bodies of water are their spaces, mm-hmm. which it takes is a shame. Like a certain confidence as well to just you think like oh there's like there's a there's a river there just like go in it and it's like first of all it has to be a river that's safe to swim in it has to be like you know a body of water which is like acceptable so like in lots of cities not go get it but also just to like to go in it and to know that to feel like it's okay <laughs> I don't know yeah. there's whenever I've swum. And like you know, I'm like a middle class white woman. Whenever I've swam in, even in just like rivers and lakes and stuff, it's always a bit like, am I on someone's land? Like, is this trespassing? Like, am I going to be arrested? Like, is it okay? It doesn't feel like you have to. You have to feel okay because so much of the countryside is obviously not not free anyway. It's kind of all owned by someone and just almost a, always a transgressive act. Yeah, so it's like kind of it feels like it should be you just go in and splash around but you know there's it's getting that access to it in the first place and then also having that kind of confidence that you're not like breaking the law and if like everything will be fine if you are and yeah I don't know yeah. it's really interesting because like I 
having been living in Scotland now for several years, like we have the right to roam, right? So fundamentally, I can go wherever the fuck I like. Sorry, can I swear? Uh, (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah, I can go wherever the fuck I like, right? Thank you, Scotland. Bless you, Scotland. Um, But yeah, so despite the fact that in terms of land ownership stuff, like so Scotland's crazy in terms of like 400 people own 75% of the entirety of Scotland's land. which is nuts because Scotland is huge as well. People forget that it's such a giant, giant place. Um, but in terms of access and ownership rights, fundamentally it's public. You can go anywhere. I can like rock up to a loch and go to a, 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 a pond on someone's like giant land, like not a private home, but if someone's got a pond on their property and it's a giant estate, I can do whatever I want there within reason. Um, so this idea of like not having immediately accessible water is really interesting to me. And I know a lot of people in the South, like particularly this summer and the last two summers when it's been so hot. Mm. Um, and wasn't there, a, there was like a, a common swimming pool that was shut down this year, this summer because of like overuse. Yeah, there was like the massive queues. It was a Lido. Yeah. A Lido yeah. And people had to shut it down. London, they close a lot of the Lidos early because they just can't get any more yeah. people in. It's like, mm. yeah. It's and that's so crazy busy. to me. And I think that's kind of like an interesting, like in terms of thinking about this relationship between how our, relationships with water are changing in climate change, yeah, you know, a moment of like extreme mm. extreme environmental change, is these kind of questions of access and privilege actually really shift yeah. because you're suddenly in, you're, you're coming across the barriers that other people have had for fucking years. Mm. Um, questions of access and ownership are now becoming at the forefront of most people's lives, not just the most vulnerable, which and, I think is really interesting. And questions of sort of body and yeah and there's the, there which are, bodies are allowed yeah, and which and like bodies ableism yeah, and all that kind of stuff yeah but also you know just having it is important to have like women's only hours at certain pools mm-hmm. for example because you know that's a problem if you want to get certain people of certain sort of cultural backgrounds or religious backgrounds to swim mm-hmm. you have to make those spaces available and it is just as important and i think that that is a big problem as well we we talk about swimming like people with the presumption that everyone knows how to swim but mm. i think for a lot of communities, it's not... Like, my sister taught my brother-in-law how to swim, and he's 40. He grew up in a Muslim community, and he didn't learn to swim. You just, not, you just don't do it. It wasn't part of that community. So that's also another thing, is, like, it's not like everyone should learn to swim if you don't want to, fine. But I think there is also this presumption that everyone can swim is also part of the mm. problem, making mm-hmm. sure that adults can feel like they can learn mm. to swim if they can, or children can swim, or women have a space to enjoy well, the pool. This is like the, the ridiculousness that was happening this week with the, is it the RNLI, so the, life, yeah, the National Lifeboat Association being like under fire from whichever one of the heinous right-wing newspapers it was. There's too many to count. Um, because 2% of their funding goes towards sort of funding programs for teaching people how to swim in different countries. And mm. good God, no, we can't teach, we can't connect with people outside of the country, not in this current age of Brexit. Um, so, and, but it's fundamentally, they're saving people's lives by teaching them how to swim in communities mm. where they would have no access to safe swimming otherwise. Mm. So just, can I give a shout mm. out? There's a really good photographic project within, within my book, but it's only a few images, so go look at it um, online or within her own work um, by Dana Marcosian, who's a photographer who made a project called The Big Sea, which was, she was she started off shadowing a refugee family who were living in Germany. And then her project became about something else entirely, which was she was sh- she sort of became very close friends with the youngest, with the oldest son within the family. And he was attending these swimming lessons that some council in Germany had put on 
for refugee children so they could learn to swim and re-calibrate their relationship with water. And she made this incredible photographic series called The Big Sea, which is about these children learning to swim. And she was, I, she's sort of a friend, and she was telling me about... Um, how sometimes the children would take her camera out of their, out of her hand and look at it, and they would go, "That's not me. Like that cannot be me," because they they were so scared and to see themselves like lying on their back in water, for example, they just couldn't fathom that they'd been able to do that. And it's such a brilliant project about things like you'd expect, like the healing powers of water, blah blah blah, but also just kind of perceptions and ideas of how we interpret water as a child and it is so infinite and how they saw it they saw it as this massive sort of unconquerable thing and you really got a sense you get a sense of that in the project so it's really anyone should go look at it. it's a brilliant project thank you so much i think that's all we've got time for now um but thank you all for joining us and for the launch of the Libraria room thank you cannot say how much I enjoyed that. Gosh, really incredible stuff. Uh, Sophie McIntosh, Lou Stoppard and Dr. Alexandra Campbell, all of them bringing clever and original insight on the language of water and our, our mysterious relationship to it. As always, go to secondhome.io for full events listings and do sign up for the newsletter at liberia.io, which features reviews and curations to keep you reading the best out there. See you next time.